Okay, well, we are continuing our articles class. We're gonna be in number 17 of the Articles of Religion. I did not bookmark that, so let's all take a minute to find Article 17. This is one of those um, articles that, ge that generates a lot of debate. So we'll, uh, we'll read it, then we'll talk about it, and then we can debate it, I guess, if you want. So, okay, this is Article 17, page 606. Of predestination and election. Like I said, this is, the, uh, this is one of those sticky ones. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God, be called according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season, they through grace obey the calling, they be justified freely, they be made sons of God by adoption, they, may be, they be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, they walk religiously in good works, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. So, for curious and carnal persons, lacking the spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. Furthermore, we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture, and in our doings that the will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared unto us in the word of God. So this is probably our longest one we've read yet. This is, this is a biggie. Um, and... This, again, this is, this is one that can get very controversial, can get very, very sticky. You can get into the weeds really quickly. But here's, here's what I want you to take home if you get, you get nothing else. We'll go into some of the details, we'll get into some of the weeds. But before we get into the weeds, let's, let's, let's give a, a proper take home. The main purpose of this article is to let us know that if you're a Christian, if you're baptized, if you're here, <laughs> if you are a member of the church, it's because God wanted you here. That's why it's there. Um, the idea being nobody, nobody comes to God because they're smarter, more pious, um, better looking than anybody else. But everybody only comes because God chose them, because God asked them, because God wanted them here. And so that's the way our article puts forth is that's supposed to be a comfort to us. So when we are... Um, Doubting our salvation, we can remember, I'm not here because I, I brought me here. I'm here because God brought me here. Um, and you remember your baptism. 
Um, it's supposed to be there to comfort us, to remind us how much God loves us. It's not really there to be dug into, and it's certainly not there for the unsaved, the curious and carnal, as they say. It's not, that's not, that's not the point. So if you take nothing else home, take home that if you're here, it's because God wants you. And that's, that's the most important thing. That said, let's get into the weeds. <laughs> so um, I'm going to bring another source today than what I have been. And this is um, Father Larry Wells, a friend of mine. He wrote this as part of the um, a series from the Anglican Continuum blog called uh, A Layman's Guide to the 39 Articles. And there's a bunch of people contributed to that that I really, really respect. Uh, and Father, Father Wells, his, his post on this is just absolutely stellar. But um, he basically began saying, okay, what's going to happen, at least in our circles, kind of traditional Anglican circles, which generally means Anglo-Catholic. Let's, let's be honest. If, if you're using the 28, that's usually what it means. At least it did at the time he was writing this. <laughs> Not as much today, but definitely at once upon a time. Um, it brings up the big bugaboo Calvinism. Oh my gosh, are we going to be talking about Calvinism in the articles? Is, 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 the, is the Anglican church Calvinistic? And so, and he points out, and I think this is really good, there's a lot of mythology surrounding that term. Like people throw it around without really understanding what they mean. And most of the time when people are freaking out about the concept of Calvinism, they're freaking out about what he calls, and I've heard called before, hyper-Calvinism. You decline this phone call that's trying to ruin our Zoom meeting here. Okay, we're back. How dare somebody try to call me when I'm trying to teach? <laughs> okay, um, so he's talking about, so he says most of the time it's kind of this straw man, this caricature that, that he calls hyper-Calvinism. Now, hyper-Calvinism usually means um, that it's, it's so deterministic, so predestinarian, that basically we're all just little automatons, we're all just little robots, we have no choices, that God basically puppets us all around, and that's just the way it is, and therefore um, going to evangelize is useless, um, God's going to save who he saves, and so don't worry about anything, you know, that's, that's kind of hyper-Calvinism. I have never met anybody that actually believes that in the real life. Not, not a Christian anyway, not a Christian that's thinking anyway. <laughs> I, have met, um, I have met some people that might try to argue that philosophically, but they don't really believe it. I've met a lot of people that want to fight against Calvinism, and so they set up that straw man. But I've never met anybody that actually believes hyper-Calvinism. There may, they may be out there, but I have never met them. So that's the first, um, that's the first thing he, he wants us to get out of the way, Father Wells, and I think he's, he's wise to do so. He then brings up um, a, a view called supralapsarianism, and this is kind of what most people who are Calvinists actually believe. And supralapsarian, you can really tie it to a concept called double predestination. So not only is there predestination to life, but the corollary of that, it's kind of a logical corollary in their mind, is a predestination to damnation. So God has chosen, actively chosen some people to be saved, and he's actively chosen other people to be damned, and that's just the way it is. You're in one of those two things. Um, the reason why it's called supralapsarianism, what that means is before the fall. So the idea here is that election was all done before the fall in Genesis 3. Therefore, 
before anything happened, God had decided who was going to be saved and who was going to be damned. And he basically is making things happen that way or the other. Um, some people might say, how is that any different from hyper-Calvinism? Um, I would have to let the Calvinists uh, <laughs> argue about that, you know, kind, kind of argue for that. Um, the, 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 main, the main issue, as far as I understand, is that what's being prized here is God's sovereignty, but they don't discount that God uses our choices in his sovereignty, right? So there's, it's not just wind-up toys, but it's this big puzzle that God has worked out, basically. And he takes our choices into account as he does his puzzle. So there's both the active active will, but there's also kind of a, um, this is not the right word, I'm forgetting the right word, but kind of a passive will where he, he works within his will, our choices um, as well. So that's um, supralapsarianism. And again, the main thing that we, we think about with that is that idea of double predestination. A third position that Father Wells brings up is called infralapsarianism, which means that after he permitted the fall is when he makes his decree of, of election. This, this time language of after, before, that's all um, anthropomorphic. I mean, time is not a thing to God, right? But the idea is, is that in a logical succession, in, in terms of cause and effect, the the idea of election happens after the fall. And so this does bring up election to life, but rather than an active predestination to damnation, basically those who are not elect, he just leaves them their just deserts, which ends up being damnation. Um, does it end up in a different place than these other two? I would say, I would say yes, um, because it, it shows God um, basically not creating somebody for the purpose of damnation. Does that make sense? Like in, in, in these other two views, hyper-Calvinism and supralapsarianism, part of God's sovereignty is that he creates people for the sake of damnation. And why does he do that? Well, they would say because in demonstrating his justice, he's getting glory. Um, yeah, so, but that's not what infralapsarianism would say. Infralapsarian, which is another form of Calvinism, would basically say God just lets the, the, everybody else run their course, which is going to be, though it's going to be damnation, he's not actively creating them for that purpose. He's just not actively saving them, if that makes sense. Now, there's a fourth position, which is also within the greater umbrella of Calvinism. Um, don't tell most of my Calvinist friends this, but it is. And um, this is called um, Amaraldianism, and I might be mispronouncing that. That's one I've read a lot. I've never actually heard anybody say. But this is sometimes called hypothetical universalism. And the main difference here is that, that Jesus's death is for the whole world, not just for the elect. So in both supralapsarianism and infralapsarian, he only dies for the elect. Their reasoning why he only dies for the elect is because if he died for people that are not going to be saved, you know, that is everybody, then um, he's kind of being thwarted in some way, like his, his sovereignty is being diminished. But in this one, it basically says he dies for the whole world, but the whole world isn't going to the, the, the benefits of his death is not going to be applied to the whole world. It's only going to be applied to the elect. Um, 
this is generally the approach that Lutheranism has, um, but you do see this in some earlier forms of the reform world as well. So um, Christ died for everybody the same way, then at least hypothetically, all mankind may be saved, even if we all acknowledge that's probably not the case <laughs> because we all know the way people really are, but at least hypothetically, anybody, everybody could have been saved. So that's, that's um, the fourth position, Amaraldinism. And then the fifth position that, that Father Wells brings up is Arminianism, which Arminianism is basically wanting to do justice to the biblical texts that talk about God's willingness for all to be saved and that he has given us, um, that he, he calls us to choose him. And so um, it's, it's, it's a concept that's very, very connected to the idea of free will. We talked about this some a couple of weeks ago um, in, the, in, the, in the article on free will. Um, you know, there, some folks will accuse Arminians of being semi-Pelagians or Pelagians. And if you remember, Pelagius was the one that basically said we all um, can theoretically be obedient, <laughs> even if we're not, we, we theoretically could. Um, I, I'm not sure that's fair. Um, now, semi-Pelagianism basically says you might be saved by grace, but you're kept by your works. So it kind of denies um, God's active power in keeping you in sanctification, but sanctification is all on your shoulders, basically. Um, and I'm not sure that's fair to Arminianism either. Basically, what Arminianism says is that that any concept of election, and they wouldn't deny election, but they would consider it more in terms of foreknowledge, basically because God knows everything. He looks ahead in time, sees what we're going to choose, and he plans things accordingly. Um, here in America, that's probably the widest spread approach to election for anybody that thinks about it. And a lot of that has to do with how much um, evangelicalism is influenced by the Second Great Awakening, which was very um, much, okay, let's, let's bring people into the kingdom by doing the right music, saying the right things, and making sure people have this choice and really engaging that free will aspect. Um, the, when we look at, well, I'm not going to go there yet. Uh, so the, the, main, the main problem with Arminianism is that it really kind of pushes aside God's sovereignty. Um, God's not really choosing us <laughs> in, in, Ar in Arminianism. We're really choosing him, and, and that doesn't seem to fit what we, what we read about in Scripture. Um, so that, those, are, those are what Father Wells brings up. In, in the text that I've been using, Brown, he brings up a couple of other possibilities as well, historic possibilities. Um, the most important of these is uh, what he calls ecclesiastical election, which basically means that if you're baptized, you're part of the elect. But that might not mean that that's a final election. So he, so that position basically says there is a sense in which if you're a member of the visible church, you are part of the elect, but um, in terms of final election, that's something secret only to God, you know, re recognizing that there are baptized people who apostatize, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and that is very much rooted in kind of applying Old Testament texts to um, to this concept. 
And, and Brown makes the case um, that um, that seems to be the position of, of our formularies over the articles and the and baptism. Um, but I, I don't I don't think that's completely accurate. I, th I think that's there's a sense where you can read that, but we can we'll talk about that in a little bit more. Okay, so I'm going to pause right there. We've talked about all sorts of crazy stuff at this point. Um, questions, comments, but then we'll, we'll we'll continue on a little bit more digging before we we end up. So so far on these basic views that most people fall into. <laughs> uh, questions or comments? Okay, I don't I don't hear anything on Zoom. Um, all I hear here live is the choir practicing. So, um, okay. All right, yeah, y'all on Zoom, feel free to unmute and, uh, and pipe up if you need to. Okay, um, let's, let's talk about kind of bringing some church history into this, some other church history. You know, everything that we've said so far is very much a post-Reformation um, debate. So you don't, you don't find um, the fathers arguing Calvinism and Arminianism. That's just not on their radar. Um, the church fathers don't really get into election very much. It's not that it's not there, but you don't, they don't really talk about it much at all until we get to Augustine. And St. Augustine, in his early writings, he seems to really put forward that foreknowledge idea. Um, but as he develops and really as he fights Pelagius, he gets to a point where he's really emphasizing God's sovereign choice a lot more. And, and part of that is because he's, he is fighting a very legalistic approach. And there is a sense where that more Arminian approach can easily lead to legalism. Because especially if you're kept, <laughs> if you're kept by your works, it's going to lead to legalism. That's just the way it's going to be. Um, how that relates to to apostasy, um, Augustine seems to be pretty fuzzy. He doesn't ever seem to to, to leave off the idea of of people being able to apostatize. And we talked about that a little bit last week. But um, what you will find again, fast forwarding to post Reformation world. Um, most Calvinists would say that there's not any such thing as a real apostasy. Like if, if you apostatize, that means you were never saved in the first place. That's evidence of, of not being saved. Um, that Amaraldianism or, or Lutheran approach is going to be more like, yeah, we recognize apostasy and that might mean you're not elect, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your baptism didn't regenerate you in some way, you know, and, and you see the same kind of thing with Brown's um, ecclesiastical um, ecclesiastical election kind of approach. You know, this this kind of two senses, this visible election, invisible election, that sort of thing. Um, and, and again, the, the main issue going on with the Calvinist is that God's sovereignty is so important. That's the top. That's that's really the lens through which they see everything else. And so, because of that, they would say that um, if God saves you, he, he's never going to let you go. There's nothing you can do. Whereas, you know, the, the Arminian would definitely believe that anybody can lose their salvation at any time. <laughs> and the, um, the Amarildian or, or Luther would more emphasize this idea of you can 
by neglecting the means of grace or by rejecting the means of grace, um, you can you can genuinely genuinely apostatize. But that that so so it's basically this this almost intentional, willful rejection in in some way or another. Um, the kind of fast forwarding through the Middle Ages, um, this this isn't as big of a deal. I'm in the Middle Ages again. You know, in the West, Augustine's position is just pretty much assumed, and and there is a strand of semi-Pelagianism that pops back up, but um, nobody really systematizes this until until the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, we do see some, some reactions to these ideas, both on the Catholic and the Orthodox side. The Eastern Orthodox seem to have a knee jerk against um, a uh, patriarch of Constantinople becoming a Calvinist, a guy named um, uh, uh, Lucaris, um, John Lucaris, Simon Lucaris, something Lucaris. But he, he basically becomes a Calvinist and he ends up getting assassinated and there's all these different like it's it's a weird thing when you talk to orthodox people about lucaris but um and there seems to be a knee jerk against really the doctrine of election um in, in the orthodox world to to where there is a strand of semi-pelagianism that creeps back into orthodoxy um it's not universal you know they don't tend to systematize things the way we do in the west anyway so um you know there you go in, in the Roman Catholic world, they basically reject any form of determinism, like they don't want to ever downplay our role in coming to faith and in working out our faith, but they don't really get any deeper than that. So um, they probably would reject Calvinism, but again, it's usually more of a caricature of Calvinism. Like I haven't met very many Roman Catholics that really understand Calvinism. Um, and I, I've met no Orthodox that understand Calvinism. I mean, just just never have. And and I, I say this not because I'm defending Calvinism. I mean, our bishop is one. I have a lot of friends that are. There's plenty of people in the diocese that are Calvinists. I do not consider myself one. Um, but um, I, I because of the, because of these guys, I understand it a lot more than really any any Roman Catholic or Orthodox I've met. But um, so that, that's kind of what happens at that time. In out, so the biggest question comes up, and this is, this is what you're going to find in, in Anglican circles. You're going to find people fighting about this all the time once they get into our world. And it's a little unfortunate. Um, some of this is because we do have, we're very much rehashing 19th century fights still in the Anglican world. Um, to me, that's very stupid, but we are still in the long 19th century which is why you have you still do see battles between Anglo-Catholics and and um, Calvinists, Reform folks within the the, the Anglican world. Um, that tends to be a little less sharp here in the states because the Episcopal Church had generally gone leaning a little Anglo-Catholic for the most part, not, not exclusively, but it made its peace with that movement in a way that never happened in England. In England, they formed parties and they started fighting. <laughs> Whereas here, you know, peace was kind of made, disagreements were there. Um, mostly what you see in terms of the real harsh stuff historically here in the States since the 19th century was frankly Anglo-Catholics that wanted to 
make nice with Roman Catholic theology and didn't like that there were still evangelicals in the church. But you do have some very reactionary um, Calvinists in the Anglican world today. I, I know quite a few. But there's also folks that are kind of moderate on either side. But these really are 19th century battles. The question is, what's going on in the 16th and 17th century? Well, when we look at our writers from that period of time, they're frankly just really hard to pin down. Um, especially in the 16th century and early 17th century, um, as much as you find a lot of our divines um, saying Calvin's a really great theologian, nobody's talking double predestination in the English church. Um, it's just, it's just not, not on our, not on our, our radar. Um, yeah, you don't really see that until the 19th century, uh, that, that really heavily Calvinist uh, approach. Instead, what, what seems to happen is that the English church does a couple of things. It sees some of those rifts forming on the continents between the Reformed and the Lutherans, between the Calvinists and the Arminians within the Reformed, and it just kind of stays out of the fight. Um, it just doesn't, I mean, we, we sent some people to the Synod of Dort, which was when the, all the Reform got, to, uh, got together to condemn the Arminians, but um, you know, our, our, our guys there were not espousing classic Calvinism. <laughs> they just weren't. I mean, we, we, have, we have some very clear hypothetical universalists there, for example, John Davenant. Um, you, and at the same time, as you see these divines of ours saying how great of the theologian Calvin is, a lot of them are also saying how wonderful the Lutheran churches on the continent are too, you know, because they retain the liturgy and all this other stuff in a way that the continental Calvinists did not. So we tended to stay out of the fight. And there is a sense where Brown is right that our formularies do almost look at that um, ecclesiastical election position. But it's not really this idea that says, if you're baptized, you're part of the elect, and then there's another elect. We don't really use that language. But what it is, is that our formularies just are going to assume that if you're in the church, if you've been baptized, God's grace is working. But, it's, but our formularies also assume that we can fall away and understand the reality of apostasy. So there's a constant warning against falling away, but there's never a sense where we need to despair over our salvation. Um, that's just not in our formularies. Um, and in fact, even with from the most notorious sinner who was baptized, our formularies would give the normal funeral, um, funeral rites and just kind of entrust them to God and let God be the judge of that. That said, we're going to consistently you know, preach holiness. <laughs> we're, our, 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 um, we're always preaching repentance. And so, yeah, that's just not a fight that we're really there for. You know, I, again, the main thing here for us is that there is a comfort we can trust God to, to be gracious. Um, that doesn't mean we have no responsibility. That doesn't mean that we can just, you know, go throughout life, know the, the formularies, the prayer book calls us to a life of holiness, a life of repentance, but nobody needs to despair of their salvation um, if they're living a life of repentance. So we have this chain in the article. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there. Um, qu questions, comments from Zoom folks, from Delaney, from anybody um, at this point.
Because I got in an argument a while back after you were explaining um, Chris and my friends recently being Orthodox. Yeah. Orthodox. And he was taking it, <clears throat> um, he was really enamored with the way that they view the sin, I guess. He says it's not law that's keeping you down, whatever. It's like, oh, it's just a sickness that anybody can get better. Other than you have to be Orthodox to be able to get better. <laughs> that's the only cure for the sickness that is sin. So when you're talking about the Calvinism, because if they don't have this law, order, black, white way of going about things, and when you're talking about the people that you have at the man's house, like I've met super hyper Calvinists, and they're the worst people to work with, because when something goes wrong, they're just like, it was supposed to happen. So then when you're saying like the Anglicans don't get on with it, is it just because we've got the Catholic and the Protestant mix? Okay. Yeah. So the the question the, for for the, for those of you all listening for the recording, the question the the, the last question was, um, or is is this because we have that Catholic and Protestant mix? Um, I, I would say not so much that because that's that's again that's really a a relatively recent way of looking at things for us. Um, but it's more that we are not go. Remember that last part here. It says. Um, Furthermore, we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture and in our doings that the, that will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared to us in the word of God. Um, there's just an unwillingness to go beyond the scriptures on this. And so um, there is a real reliance on the liturgy. I mean, I mean, we're very liturgical people, so that's part of it. And it's also a lot of our, our writings, both our liturgy and our, and our articles and the homilies are so early on in the Reformation that they happen before all these fights start to happen in the Protestant world. Well, that's the part that seems weird because we're, the Anglican Church are tagline is usually that we're pushovers because we're always like, we kind of think we're not going to take a stand on that. So it seems odd that out of all of it, this one, there's infighting amongst ourselves. Yeah, and, and, and the reason why there's infighting amongst ourselves on this is because of those really tough party issues that happened in England in the 19th century. Um, the, tr the truth is that the Tractarian movement was a, um, it did a lot of damage to unity of the church and they weren't trying to, but um, really what happens is when John Henry Newman writes Tract 90, which basically tries to reconcile the articles with the Council of Trent, and of course, later on, he realizes that's not tenable and he just becomes Roman Catholic. I mean, I mean, he does. <laughs> I mean, you know, where, where does that go? Um, it was just like a bombshell. And at the same time, you have this, this evangelical revival going on in, on the other side of the church. So whereas before, like the early 19th century and before, you certainly had some low churchmen and some high churchmen, but they generally did everything the same way. They just would kind of argue with each other in the in the newspapers and in tracts, you know, which which people do. I mean, that that's you know, if there's if there's something that's that's controversial, people are going to pick sides and they're just going to you know they're going to fight about it. And sometimes that got heated, but it was never such that it was going to tear the church apart. Well, what happens in the, in the late 19th century is that on the evangelical end, they're trying to show the solidarity with the Presbyterians and the other nonconformists. The Tractarians are trying to show their solidarity with 
the fathers, but via Rome. And so, and, and, and a lot of this has to do with, this is also the time when they are thinking about making non-conforming churches legal, um, Catholics legal, giving them more rights. And so the, the, the Church of England as a unifying social thing in England, you know, on, on that civil level is, is, is losing power. And what ends up filling the vacuum within the Church of England is fights over doctrine in a way that we didn't do before. It's not that we didn't fight about doctrine, but it never got that acrimonious. And then on top of that, once we get into the 20th century and the rules are relaxed regarding how we worship. So the stage direction, basically, you know, the, the script was still pretty much set, but the stage direction was not. Um, people just were ignoring it on both sides and they weren't getting punished for it. Now you started to have certain very visual shibboleths, visual, this is us, this is them. Um, in the Anglo-Catholic world, vestments, candles, that sort of thing. In the evangelical world, it was beginning to reject any sort of vesting, you know, that, 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 that sort of thing. To the point where now in, in England, um, a lot of the evangelicals don't even wear anything but a suit. I mean, they look like your, your, your you know, generic Protestant evangelicals in any, in any country. Um, and at the same time, you know, a lot of your Anglo-Catholics look just like Roman Catholics from 50 years ago. And to not conform to those shibboleths is a mark of disloyalty and it makes you suspect. Now, some of that seems to be disappearing in North America. Um, again, we were never quite as bad as that anyway. <laughs> I mean, but, but one of the things we're seeing in North America is that as the culture drifts and as so many of us are no longer in the Episcopal Church, um, these fights aren't as important anymore. And it's not that doctrine isn't important, but most people aren't willing to go to the mat or willing to dis agree to disagree. Frankly, that's where I am in this. Um, you know, I, I have my positions but I don't have a problem, you know, with my Anglo-Catholic friends, my, my Calvinist friends, any of that sort of thing. So the idea of kind of Anglicans as being pushovers that don't really believe in anything, that's, that's another straw man, that's a caricature. Um, but a lot of that comes because what fills in the institutional gap as the evangelicals and Catholics are fighting each other in the Church of England is the liberals. And the liberals don't believe in, I mean, yeah, doctrine matters not at all in, in, in liberalism. Social stuff matters in liberalism. So there's, there was a really great article I, I read a long time ago from a Baptist guy named Don Moeller that was called Theological Triage. And Moeller talks about there being first order issues, second order issues theologically, and then third order issues. He says, first order issues are the stuff that separates Christians from non-Christians. These are absolute non-negotiable basic stuff. Now, these are the stuff we find in the creeds. Virgin birth, um, you know, he would say salvation by faith alone is part of that. I, I think I'd agree with him on that. You know, these are things that separate orthodoxy from heresy, Christianity from false religion. Then there's second order issues where um, maybe 
the scriptures aren't explicit on some of those issues. And so people can come to different conclusions, but these different conclusions are such that you cannot be institutionally in the same body. You can't believe that we should have bishops and that we should be congregationalists at the same time. It just can't happen. You can't believe that it's okay to baptize babies and other people in the same denomination think that it's evil to baptize babies. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so these are things that are going to separate us from other Christians institutionally. Um, this, this is what's going to make a difference in table and pulpit fellowship. And then there's third order issues, which you can agree to disagree and remain in the same church. Um, is Jesus coming before or after the millennium? You know, kind of thing. Is there even such a thing as a millennium? Those are, those are third order issues. Um, you know, is it okay to have a band or it has, does it have to be choir in Oregon? You know, these are third order issues, right? Um, and then he says, for the fundamentalist, everything is a first order issue. There's no such thing as second and third order issues. And I do know some Anglicans that are like that. And those guys are almost all on either the extreme end of Anglo-Catholicism or the extreme end of Anglican Calvinism. <laughs> those are the guys that are, that are like that. That doesn't mean that all the Anglo-Catholics I know and all the Anglo-Anglican Calvinists are that way. Most of them are not. But the extreme guys, that those are those guys. They end up having, there is no such thing. Everything is a first order issue. But the liberal sees everything as a third order issue. That's where schism is worse than heresy for the liberal. Um, and that very much in the 20th century took over the Anglican church which is why we're in the situation we're in. So, and that's, <laughs> yeah, you know, and just kind of generally worldwide. So, um, yeah, that is that. I think I'm gonna go ahead and end the video here. Um, I think that's a good place to end, but um, we might revisit a little bit of the details on the article itself next week, because there's a lot of really good stuff in here. And again, the thing to remember is that election is there for your comfort. It's not there to um, split hairs. That's not the point. And the point is not for us to, to figure out who's elect and who's not elect. The point is there according to our articles for our comfort. God bless those of y'all in Zoom land. Thanks, Father Isaac. Okay, well, hello, those of y'all on Zoom. Hello, um, the, the, the uh, Pam <laughs> here in person. <laughs> um, just an upfront announcement. We are going, this is going to be the last class um, of the year. We're going to um, take a break uh, until the second Wednesday of January. So that's the 12th, I believe, January 12th. Um, so yeah, we will not be having even song or the class for the next few weeks. Um, those of you all on Zoom, I hope you can hear me. Um, I don't have my little earbuds that plug into the thing, so um, I cannot hear you, but I'll, I'll, I'll look, I saw Scott's thumbs up and that'll do for me. Okay, well, what I wanted to do today is just do a little bit of follow-up on um, Article 17 of Predestination and Election. And uh, the reason for that is I had said 
that um, the important stuff with this was not getting into the weeds of all the different theories of predestination, different theories of election. Um, and then that's exactly what I spent the entire time doing was getting into the weeds <laughs> of all those theories. Um, so a couple, a couple of things about that, and then, then I, but I do want to get it, revisit the, uh, the, that article. That's our article number 17 on page 606. Um, the reason why I did want to outline the different ways that this can be looked at, especially the way it has been looked at historically in Anglican circles, is just to show that there is a wide range of how we can and have interpreted the doctrine of election um, in the art, you know, within the framework of being faithful to the articles and the prayer book um, and the homilies, and even further back to the creeds and the scriptures themselves. So that's why that is there. Um, I also haven't published that um, the recording yet. I'll be publishing these two together because I want this follow-up to be appended to, and I think it's really important. But what I so I want to do today is just break down the article itself just so that we can get what we really need to get because I don't want anybody to walk away saying, my gosh, are we splitting hairs over stupid little things. This is actually a very important article, um, not just theologically, but practically. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So article number 17 of predestination and election. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in, in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to his honor. So let's stop right there. Notice that we're first focusing on predestination to life. That is, God has chosen us for life. And so what does that mean? It's okay, it's the everlasting purpose of God. So this is something God designed to do. He wants to do this. This is important to him. Therefore, it's important to us. Well, what's he doing? It says, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he had constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us. So how he chooses... He doesn't let us know that we have we we don't know that that's that's his own business. Um, it is his counsel secret to us. Um, so when folks want to split over, okay, is that foreknowledge? Is that control? How is that? Doesn't matter. You know that's God's business, not ours. All we know is that He's chosen. Okay, um, before the foundation of the world, um, what, whatever that means. You know, <laughs> but it does mean He's not reacting to us. This is part of His plan from the get go to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind. So first, that's what he's choosing to do is to deliver us from curse and damnation. That's really cool that he would choose us to do that. So if you are a member of the church, if you are a baptized Christian who's been united to him by faith, um, he wanted you there. Before you chose him, he chose you. That's what that means. Um, and, he, and he chose us in Christ. That's the important part, or that's, well, that's another rather important part, is that this is in Christ. So we've been chosen in Christ, which means he's chosen us both because of what Jesus did, but also he's choosing us 
in and through his son. That's how he brings us to him. So he brings us by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to his honor. So why does he do this? Because he loves us and showing that goodness brings him honor. He gets glory by us coming to him when he chooses us. Okay, so let's continue on. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God, be called according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works. And at length, by God's mercy, they attend to everlasting felicity. So we're getting a little bit of a logical sequence going on here, okay? And this is a sequence of logic, not necessarily a sequence of time. But here's the sequence here. He says, okay, so um, those who have been given that benefit, what's the benefit? That he's chosen us, that he's elected us, he's, he's called us, right? So what happens? They're called according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season. So the spirit, he calls us by the spirit. What's that mean? Well, it's, it's through the word and through the sacraments. The spirit, that's how the spirit works in the ordinary means of grace. And so by the spirit, he calls us in due season. Um, what's due season mean? That means it's his timing, not our timing, <laughs> right? Um, you know, uh, Saint, Saint Monica prayed for her son, Augustine, who we now know as Saint Augustine for 30 years before it was in due season, right? So, so um, we're, we're called according to God's purpose by the spirit working in due season. And so through his grace, we obey the calling. So there is an obey of the calling. Our conscience is pricked. Our hearts are changed. And we obey the voice of the Lord when he's calling us. Why? Because of his grace. He's given us the grace to do that. Um, they are justified freely. So we are justified not because we did anything, not because we were smarter or better or, 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 or prettier or anything like that, not because we were um, born as, as, as Jews versus Gentiles, as Englishmen versus Americans, as white versus black, nothing like that. It's all justified freely, free gift of justification. Justification, again, is being declared righteous. So we're justified by Christ, made righteous, declared righteous. But it says we're made sons of God by adoption. We are adopted into his family. He chooses us to be his family. Um, we could, you see that word sons there, either as kind of the older English being generically children. But there is something even more theologically about that male, um, that male use there, is that we're made like his son, Jesus. You know, our adoption is to be adopted like his son, Jesus. Okay, not that Jesus was adopted, but we're brought in because of Jesus' sonship and given that, that same status, basically. Yeah, Jesus was not adopted. He was only begotten, right? Um, they be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So as, we're, as we're, we grow in our faith, this faith that he's given us, that he's brought us into the family, and really because he's brought us into the family, and adopted us, we grow into the image of Jesus. We begin to look like Jesus, act like Jesus. Um, people see Jesus in us. We're conformed to the image of his son. Um, then it says they walk religiously in good works. We are, our behavior does get better. 
um, we, we, we turn from our sins and turn to God, again, by his grace. And it says, and, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. And in the end of all that, we're with the Lord in glory. So again, that's, that's a logical chain. Um, you can see some of that in the book of Romans. There's, there's a similar chain that this kind of puts some flesh on. Let's go to the next paragraph. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed in Christ, and as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God, let's put a bookmark there, even though we're still in the middle of a sentence, this is a full thought, um, for the Christian, for the one who is walking with the Lord, who has been regenerated and converted, even if that happened when you were a little baby, predestination and election is, is a comfort. It's sweetness. Um, one minister I, 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 I uh, listen to a lot calls it the family secret. Um, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is the reason why he's let us in on this secret is for our benefit, for that comfort, for that um, sweet, pleasant, unspeakable comfort. And, and how do we know that we're those persons? Well, um, we, we feel in ourselves the working of the spirit of Christ, putting to death the works of the flesh and um, our, 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 our fleshly desires, our earthly members, drawing up our mind to high and heavenly things. And, it, and, and we see our faith being established and strengthened. That's what confirm means here. The faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed in Christ. And it kindles up our love towards God. How do you know you're one of the elect? Well, you're, you're getting better. You love the Lord. Um, um, your, 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 your mind is drawn to heavenly things. Um, you're, 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 you see the spirit of the Lord working, working in you. Um, and sometimes that's kind of hard to see, right? Sometimes growth is more obvious than other times. But pretty much... If you're asking the question and you look at your life and you see, oh my goodness, I either need to do, I need to change. I'm not living like a Christian or, okay, I do need to, to, to make changes, but I am seeing the Lord working in my life. That all means you're, you're, you're part of that, right? <laughs> that means that you're part of that. Um, Charles Spurgeon said something to the effect of, okay, if you're hearing this, this, this message and you think to yourself, yes, I really want to be part of the, that. I want to be part of that number. I want to be part of the elect. That's a sign you're part of the elect. If you're like, I don't care about none of this. What's he, what's he on about? And I don't need Jesus in my life. That means you're probably not, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Okay. So that's the benefit, right? The unspeakable com comfort, the evidence it says, so for curious and carnal persons lacking the spirit of Christ to have continually before their eyes, the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. Okay, this is not, a, what he's saying there is this is not an evangelism tool. 
We don't bring out the doctrine of election when we're talking to the unbeliever, because what's that going to do? He's either going to say, oh, I guess God didn't choose me and, um, and go, you know, and commit suicide or something. Or he's going to say, I guess God didn't choose me. I'm going to go live however I want. You know, if I'm, I'm going to hell. I might as well enjoy the way there. You know, that, that's, 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 that's what this, this engenders in the unbeliever. So this is not a doctrine for the unbeliever. This is the family secret. And it says, furthermore, we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture and in our doings that the will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared unto us in the word of God. Basically, this last paragraph is saying, don't try to figure it out too much. All the weeds we were getting into last week, <laughs> our article says, yeah, that's probably not a good way to go. <laughs> And um, yeah, again, I, I do apologize if anybody walked away from last week thinking, um, oh, this is, this is, this is, this is terrible. This is confusing. You know, what, what are we on about? No, this is a very good thing. Um, you know, and I don't think that, that this last part of the article means that um, theologians doing what theologians do is bad. I mean, these discussions are good, necessary, um, but there's a place for them. And um we don't need to make this the, the central thing that we try to figure out because scripture hasn't given us enough information to do so. And so we need, we, we, we need to keep things within the bounds of scripture, which is why, again, all we have, I gave you all those different interpretations last year. Those are all interpretations that have, that are, that fall well within the articles. So, um, and they fall well within scripture. I mean, some of them have weaknesses that they need to answer for, but it's not like they haven't tried to do that. So the point is, let's, 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 let's keep to God's word and not stray too far out of that, not try to delve too deeply into the things that we just don't have an answer to. Okay, so that's Article 17 of Predestination and Election. Um, I have, uh, since I can't hear the folks on Zoom, uh, Pam, you got anything you want to hit on this? Okay, good, good. Okay, let's hit number 18. This logically follows. It's very short. Number 606, article, page 606, article 18. They also are to be had accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth, so that he be diligently to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. For Holy Scripture doth set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. What's this mean? Well, it's, uh, it's always been very popular to say, well, as long as you're sincere in your belief and you try to live out what you really believe sincerely in the right way, that God will take care of that. Um, it's, 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 this is universalism is what it is. And um, the Bible says, no, there's only one name by which we are saved, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, the Muslim needs to leave Islam. Um, the, 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 the practicer of Judaism needs to leave the Jewish religion. And that doesn't mean you have to leave your, your cultures behind. That doesn't mean you have to leave your people behind. Um, but that does mean you have to turn to Christ. Um, you know, the, the pagan can't be a, you, you can't be a noble, a noble pagan. It doesn't work that way. A noble, godly pagan. There's no such thing as a godly pagan. Um, you, you, you might have the common grace. Every, you know, there is a common grace. There's nice people. There's people that try to live morally in every, every faith or no faith. 
But ultimately, to really be godly, you need Jesus because he's the one that defines that. He's the one that makes us godly. We don't have that in of ourselves. We need Jesus. And it's only in the name of Jesus whereby we are saved. So this does make evangelism um, an important thing. We, we, you know, our unsaved friends, let's, let's, let's tell them about Jesus. Okay, I'm going to go into article number 19. This is one of my favorite articles. Um, if, if for no other reason, then it comes up a lot in, um, in, in, in my own studies, writings, preaching, and that sort of thing. Article 19 of the church. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in the which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance. In all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. As the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, so also the church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in manners of faith. Okay, so the first part of this is the way that we are defining the church. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a congregation of faithful people where the word of God is duly preached, and the sacraments are administered the way that Jesus told us to do so. Um, most all of the, the Reformation era churches um, come up with a very similar definition. And some of this is in contradistinction to Rome's definition, <laughs> which is that you have to be in communion with the Bishop of Rome. <laughs> you can't be a true church you know, to, to in, um, in, in Roman Catholicism without being in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Um, there have been various other definitions that we see in church history at different times. So, um, but but this is this is the working definition that we use coming out of the Reformation. Why is this important? Well, the main issues of the Reformation were: Is the Word of God being properly preached? Are the sacraments being administered properly? And we would we would say that the corruptions of the medieval church meant that no, it needed to be reformed. Um, what this also says, with apologies to, to the Anglo-Catholics among us, that um, it is possible to be part of the church without having bishops. <laughs> now, in what way does that work? That's, 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 that's another story, right? Because you know, we do see that, that continuity of bishops. But I can't look at my Presbyterians and friends and say that they don't have a church, that they don't have the word of God, they don't have um, the Lord's Supper, you know, I can't tell them that, that they don't have valid baptisms, you know, that, that's just way beyond what the scriptures let us say. Now, can I say they ought to have bishops? Sure, and I will say they ought to have bishops, um, you know, historically speaking, um, you know, but, you know, same thing with our, with our Baptist congregational friends, um, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, what's the important point is proper administration of the sacraments, proper preaching of the word of God. And what's proper preaching of the word of God? That means you're actually preaching the word of God. I mean, that's really what that means is that, that what we're preaching is from the word of God. You know, no sermon is perfect. Um, no, no, no minister is perfect. Obviously, no church is perfect, but that's not what we're called to. We're called to faithfulness, not perfection. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's what we would say there. Now, I, I would say there are some churches where that second part with duly administering the sacraments um, have some real issues. You know, there are, there are some 
Uh, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's not uncommon in, in kind of big box, non-denominational evangelicalism, that they have no understanding of what baptism is. You know, it's not uncommon for um, people to spend years and years and years in kind of generic big box evangelicalism without, without being baptized. You know, they would not be able to receive communion at most churches because of that. I mean, they basically have never joined the church. <laughs> you know, they, they, may, they, may, they may love Jesus, but they need to join his church, <laughs> you know, officially. And that's ignorance. I mean, that, that's, 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 not, that's not something that's usually willful. It's, it's usually misunderstandings and ignorance and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I would say that the, the view of baptism that sees it as a work that we do rather than a gift we receive from God is probably problematic. It leads to a lot of those misunderstandings. So, um, but at the same time, you know, the point is here, we're, we're not going to de-church anybody um, who is preaching the word, administering the sacraments, and is faithful. But then we have that second half. As the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch have erred, so also the church of Rome erred, erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in manner of faith. Um, so... In terms of the errors of the Church of Rome at this time, we're going to see that popping up in the next um, few articles, so we're not going to get too much into detail on that. But suffice it to say, uh, there would be no Reformation if the Church of Rome had not erred, both in ceremonies and manners of life and in faith. Um, you know, the, the medieval church had become corrupt. And you know what? Rome recognized that, too. They had their own Reformation. They call it the Council of Trent, <laughs> you know? Um, they doubled down on some of those things that we would say were, were problematic, but they also reformed some other things. So, um, you know, there you go. Um, what about Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch? That's, that's talking about the Eastern Orthodox churches. One of the questions I get most often when talking about this with um, folks of the higher churchmanship persuasion, whether they're Anglicans or outside the Anglican church or just kind of uh, people that are exploring different liturgical churches is okay. I see in article 19, it says that these Eastern churches have, have erred in matters of faith as well as in ceremonies. Okay, tell me what those are. Why is, why is the East not the, not the one true church like they say? Um, the funny thing is the, the, the writers of our articles don't really get into that. Why is that? Well, probably they're, they're, they're stating this in a way that at the time would have been recognized by the entire Western church. <laughs> you know, the Western church would have been saying, yeah, they, they, they fell off track in some way, and that's why we're not in communion to each other. Okay, well, what are the areas where, where those disagreements um, that led to this, the, the schism of East and West happen? Um, which is absolutely tragic, by the way. Um, there were really two main issues. One was, frankly, the Bishop of Rome was pushing around his authority and the Eastern churches didn't like that. And um, I think, frankly, the Eastern churches were right about that. Otherwise, again, we wouldn't have had a, ref a reformation. The other issue though was more theological and that was the issue of the filioque clause, the, the, the procession of the spirit from the father and the son. Um, these days, it's pretty common for Anglicans to be a little embarrassed by the filioque by that, that clause in the Nicene Creed where we say, and the son regarding the spirit's procession. And the reason why Anglicans tend to be a little embarrassed about that is because we recognize that it's the changing of the creed was not done ecclesiastically the right way. You know, we never got all the churches together to work it out. But 
we should never be embarrassed by the doctrine of the double procession because that is scriptural. Um, you know, John 14, for example. And we affirm it again in our articles. So that's probably what they're talking about. Um, alternatively, they might have been talking about some stuff that happened earlier in church history. Um, you know, for example, the way that there were times when the entire um, Eastern Church had accepted Arianism, except for a couple of bishops who, uh, who, were, who eventually got vindicated. Um, that might be that sort of thing. Um, the Eastern churches tend to be synergistic when it comes to salvation. They, 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 in other words, they put a lot of emphasis on our own con contribution to salvation. Some of that is that they're using terms a little bit differently than we are in the West, but some of it also was that they never have had as big of a problem with the Pelagian ideas as the West has. This was very much a Western um, fight. They didn't really ever have as much of a problem with it. And so when you talk to the Eastern churches about salvation, they are going to very much play up man's role. Um, and I think that's a problem. Um, now, again, you know, some of that is just theologically talking past each other. Um, but that, that's, usually, that's what they mean most likely in this article. Um, you know, the, the main reason why I could never have been in the Eastern churches is that they don't have that solid Augustinian foundation of um, God being the one behind our salvation completely. The, you know, that, that idea of election predestination that is, again, very Augustinian, um, going against those errors of Pelagius. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just too, too Augustinian to ever be, be an Eastern Orthodox person. Um, but, but again, you know, some of, some of that is just a different theological vocabulary. But, okay. I think that's where we'll end today. Um, we'll pick up with Article 20 of the Authority of the Church, because that's an important follow-up. Really, all these start to follow each other, but we're not going to pick that up until the second week of, um, of January. So, uh, uh, yeah, Pam, unless you had anything you wanted me to address before we close, we'll go ahead and call it. All right. Well, God bless you guys on Zoom, and God bless those of you all listening to the recording. Thank mm -hmm. you.